Old Testament reading this morning is from Psalm 16. I'm going to ask you to please turn with me in your Bibles to Psalm 16. And of course, this is, contains the prophetic section and passages that speak to Christ and the grave not being able to hold him. Psalm 16, this is the word of the Lord. Preserve me, O God, for in you I take refuge. I say to the Lord, you are my Lord, and I have no good apart from you. As for the saints of the land, they are excellent ones, in whom is all my delight. Now the sorrows of those who run after another God, they shall multiply. Their drink offerings of blood I will not pour out or take their names on my lips. The Lord is my chosen portion in my cup, and Lord, you hold my lot. The lines have fallen for me in a pleasant place. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. I bless the Lord who gives me counsel. In the night also my heart instructs me. I have set the Lord always before me. Because he's at my right hand, I will not be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad and my whole being rejoices. My flesh also dwells secure. For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol. Or let your Holy One see corruption. You make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Amen and praise God. Now please turn with me to 1 Corinthians 15. Yes, we are taking a little diversion from Romans. We'll begin in Romans 7 next week, Lord willing. Uh, But for this morning, 1 Corinthians 15, as we talk about the resurrection. And just as you're turning, Paul's addressing the group there at Corinth, and they were kind of a a rowdy bunch at Corinth. There was always one issue after another, one problem after another that Paul's addressing uh, with these folks in that particular congregation or in that area. And one of those issues that came up was the the resurrection. That, okay, Christ has been raised, but there's not going to be a resurrection of our bodies, and there's not going to be an ultimate resurrection for us. And Paul just corrects that very emphatically. That's what he's doing this morning. And in that context, he speaks of the resurrection of Christ and all the implications of that, what it means for uh, Christ, what it means for us. So 1 Corinthians 15, beginning in verse 12 through 22. This is the word of the Lord. Now, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there's no resurrection of the dead? But if there's no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. We're even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise, if it's true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope only in this life, we are of all people most to be pitied. But, in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by one man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we do thank you and praise you, Lord God. We thank you so much for your powerful word and for your spirit. And I do pray, Lord God, that you would pour your spirit out upon us, that you would be with all of us this morning from the pulpit on out, Lord, 
that we may hear your precious word, that it would bring conviction to our hearts, that it would bring instruction, Lord, to us, to our minds. Lord, that it would bring comfort to us, even as we look to Jesus Christ, the author and perfecter of our faith. Bless this, Lord, to your glory and for our good. I pray in Jesus' name, amen and amen. All right, so the centrality of the resurrection of Jesus Christ is everything for us. It just is as Christians. Everything stands and falls. It means everything for us. Without the resurrection, without the bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ, then we have nothing. There's nothing we could say with confidence about the faith that it's, that it's really true, that, that any of this could, could even be true. And so, like I mentioned, there's a controversy that there's no bodily resurrection for believers. And Paul, in a most emphatic, very, very emphatic way, responds. And he points out that if we're not going to be raised from the dead, then even Christ hasn't been raised. Christ, the one who came from heaven, to do just that, to defeat sin, to live the life that you and I could never live. Don't you love that? That Christ lived a perfect, holy, sinless life, earning our salvation in that way, winning our salvation by keeping the law at every single point, and then willingly going to the cross to pay for the sins that we've committed. That's Christianity. That's so beautiful, that sacrifice of Christ. Why would we want to live for ourselves or anything else? when we know what Christ has done for us. But without the resurrection, that would mean absolutely nothing. It would mean nothing that he came to to defeat sin, to remove the penalty of sin, which is death, to reverse the curse that we are currently under, to bring salvation in all its fullness. And that means being raised, being resurrected on the last day and entering into his kingdom. That's what awaits his believers. And Paul is kind of working backwards, and he's explaining the implications. If there's no resurrection, then everything else is meaningless. It just is. There's really nothing we should be doing. We should kind of close the light, turn out the lights, and go live just the way that we kind of would want to by our feelings, by what seems best to us, and just do our thing. Because if there's no resurrection, there's really no hope at all. Everything would be, you couldn't know anything to be true in regards to the Christian faith. So the resurrection, it's so cool here, is foundational, even though it comes after Jesus' earthly ministry. It's not simply the crowning jewel of Christ's ministry, but it is the very crux. It is the most important, decisive matter, because the validity of everything else that came before rests on it. Do you understand that? Everything else that comes before when Christ died, our justification, our adoption, everything rests on the validity of the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. So does our resurrection as well. This is why the doctrine of the resurrection is under constant attack nearly. And it is a hard-to-believe doctrine, obviously, isn't it? For obvious reasons. It's a very hard-to-believe doctrine. It's just not in our experience that we see people raised from the dead or anything raised from the dead at all. Death has such a finality to it, doesn't it? Like, when you're dead, you're dead, and that's it. There's no really coming back to life. And so it does make it difficult to believe in in that way. And yet, what is very telling about the resurrection of Christ is that the very first thing that the religious leaders did after Christ was crucified and it was claimed that he was buried, or when it was claimed that he was raised from the dead, 
they didn't point to the outlandishness of that thought. Like, you know, like if, if I came and told you somebody was raised from the dead, you'd be like, what? You're nuts. You know, that can't be, that doesn't happen. That goes against everything. That wasn't the reaction of the religious leaders at all. That's very, very telling. You know, and they're not saying, well, such an idea is just so silly. How can you even believe that? How foolish that is to believe that somebody could be raised from the dead. No, 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 no. For them, it could not be true that Christ was raised from the dead because that would mean, and they knew that that would mean that Christ is king, that Christ is savior, that Christ is Messiah, and they would need to bow the knee to him. And for them, that was unacceptable. And that shows us just the depth, the absolute depth of their sinful unchanged heart, despite the facts. You can bring all the facts you want, that heart that doesn't want to believe, that wants to do its own thing, that wants to, is going to do its own thing. They knew the implications. I do want you to turn with me back to Matthew 27. I'm going to read from Matthew 27 and 28 because I want you to understand the depth of sin of the human heart, but the reality of the resurrection, because these men were not saying you know, oh my, that's, you know, silly thinking. How could you do that? That's just, are you kidding me? No, it's a lot different than that. It's very telling. So Matthew 27, 62 through 66, then 28, 11 through 15. So Matthew 27, beginning in verse 62. The next day, that is, after the day of preparation, the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered before Pilate, and they said, sir, we remember how that imposter said, while he was still alive, after three days I will rise. There it is. Jesus, they knew the claims of Christ. Therefore, order the tomb to be made secure until the third day, lest his disciples go and steal him away and tell the people that he's risen from the dead, and the last fraud will be worse than the first. Pilate said to them, you have a guard. You have a guard of soldiers. Go make it as secure as you can. So they went and made the tomb secure by sealing the stone and setting a guard. And it wasn't just like a, a rent-a-guard, like a two-security guard or, or the mall guard. No offense to the mall guards, but, you know, it's not like that. This was a garrison. There was a lot of guards standing there with weapons, and nobody was going to get by them or through them at that time. And then over to Matthew uh, 28, beginning in verse 11. While they were going, behold, some of the guard went into the city and told the chief priest what had taken place, that Jesus had risen, that the tomb was empty. And when they assembled with the elders and taken counsel, they gave a sufficient sum of money to the soldiers. There's the bribe, there's the payoff. And they said, tell people his disciples came by night and stole him away while we were asleep. And if this comes to the governor's ears, we will satisfy him and keep you out of trouble. So they took the money and did as they were directed. And this story has been spread among the Jews even to this day. Do you see that? Do you see? People don't want it to be true because if it's true, then you need to bow the knee to Jesus Christ. You need to acknowledge him as Savior and King. So if you could get rid of the resurrection, everything else goes. But listen, they knew the claims of Christ, didn't they? They knew that he said that I was going to be raised on the third day. They asked for extra guards and they got it. They bribed the guards. And then they fabricated a truly outlandish unbelievable, barely plausible story, right? Who would believe that this ragtag bunch of scared, afraid disciples would go and overpower guards, move the stone, and take Jesus out? But see, that's what sin does. That's how we rationalize. They don't want the truth, so they'll believe just about anything to avoid the truth. And that's what we do as unbelief to this very day. We don't want it, so we're going to rationalize, minimize, 
you know, compromise to turn it around. Even, even today, when it comes to the resurrection of Jesus Christ, or, or, you know, throughout history, different theories as to why the, the tomb was empty, because Jesus couldn't have been raised from the dead. So something has to explain that. So you, you see this initial theory, which was actually a conspiracy. But then through the ages, there's, there's been uh, theories such as the swoon theory. How many of you have heard of that, the swoon theory, that Jesus wasn't dead, he they, you know, showed no signs of life, but he wasn't completely actually dead. And then in the tomb, he was resuscitated and somehow rose, came, overpowered the gods. I did all that stuff to, to get out. Again, how plausible is that? I mean, it's easier to believe being actually raised from, from the dead than that kind of story. And another one, there are so many. Uh, another one's the mass hallucination theory, the, 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 the Christian delusion theory in that way. They believed so much in Jesus Christ. They had believed him. They believed him. They wanted it to be true so badly that even after he died, they thought that they saw him alive. So it was kind of mass delusion, mass you know, understanding that, that you know, somehow hallucination that he was, we want him so much to be alive that, he, that we, we've even seen him alive in that way. Again, very, very difficult to believe, but that's what happens with the sinful heart. Very creative in that way. Now, if they're correct, if there's anything other or less than a bodily resurrection, then as Paul points out, he's right. Look at the implications. Paul says, in verse 14, and if Christ has not been raised, then number one, our preaching's in vain. Our preaching's in vain. And, and, and that word is kenos in the Greek, and it just means empty. It means it's empty. It's, there's no substance to it. There's nothing. There's no use to it at all. It's like when you, if you go and get a container, a carton of milk out of the fridge, and you, you go to pour it, and nothing comes out. Ah, it's just empty. It's no use. It's no good. There's nothing there for you. That's what he says. Our preaching would be empty and in vain. Why would it be in vain? Because we preach Christ and we preach Christ crucified, that he lived a perfect life, that he died, that he was buried, and on the third day that he rose again. That was the preaching of the word. That was the, 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 the crucifixion, the burial of Christ, the resurrection of Jesus Christ. There's essential elements of the gospel, and that's what the disciples did from early on as we read through the book of Acts. Even in Acts chapter 4, verses 1 and 2, if we have those we do? <laughs> well, we'll wait for that to wake up. We could, uh, in 1 Corinthians 15, verses 3 to 8, one, uh, verses 3 to 8, just turn back in your Bibles. I was going to read this one. 1 Corinthians 15, for I delivered to you as first importance, Paul says, what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve, then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still with us, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, to the, all the, and then to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he also appeared to me. Acts 4.12, as they were speaking to the people, the priests and the captain of the temple and the Sadducees came upon them, greatly annoyed because they were teaching what? They were teaching the people proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. So that was the preaching. That was the teaching. That's the essence there. If, we're, if it's not true, then it's vain. It's empty. We couldn't know anything for certain, let alone believe that Jesus was a perfect, sinless Savior who atoned for sins on the cross. Now it follows, if our preaching's in vain, Paul goes on to say, if, if he's not been raised and our preaching's in vain, and guess what? Your faith is in vain too. It just follows, obviously. 
that if you believe the preaching, your faith is in vain, person who claims to be a Christian. It is for nothing. Everything that you've believed about Jesus, everything that you've been taught, everything that you believe about sin, salvation, and eternity, how you view the world through the lens of Scripture as Christian, how, how, what you believe about life, death, and eternity, what we tell others about Christ, would, just think of the implications, would be a sham. Your faith would be a sham. Wishful thinking at best if Christ hasn't been raised from the dead. Paul's making this. We're seeing how futile it is. Right? Again, in the context, if there's no resurrection of the, the Christian, then even Christ hasn't been raised. If Christ hasn't been raised, then none of this means anything. It would mean that Jesus himself was a liar and or at least a, a mad person, a crazy person, for he himself stated on separate occasions in Luke 9.21, and he strictly charged and commanded them to tell this to no one, saying the Son of Man must suffer many things, be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes, be killed, and on the third day be risen again. So Christ himself is saying this. And on another occasion, Luke 18, 31 through 34, he was taking the, 12, um, taking the 12, he said to them, see, we're going up to Jerusalem, and everything that is written about the Son of Man by the prophets will be accomplished. For he'll be delivered over to the Gentiles. He'll be mocked and shamefully treated and spit, spit upon. And after flogging him, they will kill him. And on the third day, he will rise. But they understood none of these things. This saying was hidden from them, and they did not grasp what was being said. But there it is. Jesus himself is saying this. Do you understand that Paul's just making the case, and we're just seeing the case. Without the bodily resurrection of Christ, then there's nothing for us. Absolutely. everything's at stake here. He's putting everything on the line. Everything just unravels. Even God, the entire Trinity, the entire Godhead would be rendered meaningless. Right? He goes on to say, we're, uh, verse 15, we are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified that God has raised Christ, whom he did not raise, if it's true that the dead are not raised. So if the dead is not raised, no, Paul, it's, he's putting everything on the line. So in Galatians 1.1, we are told this, Paul, an apostle, not from men, nor through man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father, God the Father who raised him from the dead. Romans 8, 11. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. And then John 10, 18. The whole trinity comes under scrutiny and is just devastated. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down and have authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my Father. So, so Paul, it's rendering everything meaningless. And it doesn't get better. It, if you it's getting even worse as he goes on, doesn't it? Because look at verse 17. He goes on and says this. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile. We talked about that. And you are still in your sins. In other words, can you imagine as a Christian, what do you believe? That our sins are forgiven. That we're in Jesus Christ. That we have life. Past, present, and future sins have been paid for, have been atoned for. And we rest in him without the resurrection. Paul's saying, no, 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 no. There's no forgiveness. That would be the reality. You have not been delivered. You have not been redeemed. You have not been reconciled, and there's no way to be redeemed or reconciled with God. What a, what a place. That, that's just so cool, isn't it? For those of us who know Christ and believe in him, your faith, 
That faith that changed you if you're in Christ this morning. That faith that you can't truly explain because he made you that new person. I mean, we could talk about what happened, but, but we can't fathom. We can't really know. Like, it's so hard. Like, yeah, I know one day I was doing this and I was sinning and I was okay with that. And the next day I'm in Jesus Christ and I can't live for anybody else but him. That's the change that he makes through regeneration in our hearts. That desire that you have for God that desire that you have for his word, to know him, to love him, to obey him, to put off the old man, to, to put on the new man, to fight for the faith and defend the faith. Right? Standing in front of the abortion clinic and pleading for life, witnessing to family and friends, risking relationship because of the word of God. This is how much I love you, that I have to say what you're doing is sin, and it's not going to get you anywhere but hell. But I love you too much to let that go. So we risk our relationship in that way because of Christ. Being a faithful husband, being a godly wife, being a missionary, missionaries who leave everything to go to the remotest part of the earth to bring the gospel of Jesus Christ, to lost tribes, to lost people, putting their lives on the line in that way leaving it all to bring the gospel. The rejection that we face, the ridicule. Oh, you believe in that? How silly you have to be. The persecution we endure. All of that and more means absolutely nothing if there is no resurrection. Do you understand? It's more than just like these facts. It's, it's spiritual. It's in our hearts. It, it, it is real, and this is why we are the way that we are as Christians. If it wasn't, then there's nothing for us. It would be a cruel injustice. It gets even worse. Look at verse 18. He says, again, verse 17, If Christ hasn't been raised, your faith is futile, you're still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. Man, it just gets worse and worse. See how it unravels? See how everything relies on the bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ? Those who die, now listen, those who die having believed they were truly saved, who lived as faithful Christians, man, who love Christ. You know, we, of course, we've had our battle with sin, but we never really backslid. We always believed. We always trusted. We always loved Christ in our lives. We always served him. We fought the good fight of faith. We long for eternal life. We're not afraid of death. You know, we know we're going to be with him only to find at death we're still in our sins. How cruel, what a cruel injustice that would be. Verse 19, if in Christ we have hope in this life only, then we are of all, the, I'm sorry, we are of all people the most to be pitied. It is very true. If it's only for this life, if we're doing this only for this life, if we're sacrificing, if we're living for Christ, if we're putting up with what we put up with as Christians, only for this life, then we are to be pitied. Then we are right. Then the one, the, the, we're the ones to be pitied, not the unbelievers, because they would have gotten it right. The people that say, you guys are idiots. You guys are foolish. Why are you doing this? Why are you obeying? Why don't you just be who you are? Why don't you just live the way you want to live? Right? They would be right. And that whole idea, that whole mentality, everything that we're surrounded by in terms of how we're supposed to live, what, what do we hear from the world? Hey, man, you only live once. So, so you might as well live life to the fullest. Make the most of it. You only go around one time. 
Do what you need to do. Do what you want to do. Do what's going to make you happy because this is all you've got. And that's kind of the mentality of the world, right? So, so that's what we're going to do. That bumper sticker would be true. He who dies with the most toys wins. If you're a little bit older, you remember that, right? Remember that bumper sticker? The younger ones, what are you talking about? Isn't that true? That's what the younger ones are saying. No. Uh, right? The Epicureans would be right. And they were the philosophers. They were the, the Greek philosophers and others and down through the sage. And right now we're living in that time of the Epicurean kind of mindset philosophy. Eat, drink, and be merry. Pursue pleasure. Pursue what your heart desires. Live for the now because that's all there is. So I'm going to do that. that. You know, without the resurrection, then yes, we are fools. Right? We're not going, you know, with that part of our nature that wants to make us happy or be free or think we'll find fulfillment in, right? That's, that's what we do. It would be true, like Mark says, that, that religion, and he's speaking mainly of Christianity, is the opium or the opiate of the masses. So religion is just a construct for you people that don't really know how to live life, you know, that you're afraid of the uncertainty of life, and this gives you some sort of comfort. It offers a false comfort to you. So go ahead and believe your little religion you know, that, that crutch that you need because you can't handle life the way that it is, that psychological kind of wish fulfillment. That would be right. Okay, that's the end of the sermon. Let's go home. And if it ended here, it would be bad. And yet, what did we talk about last week? Look at verse 20. There's that little conjunction, that little three-letter word that changes everything. He says, but... But, in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. Amen and praise God. In fact, when Paul, that word is so strong, it's the absolute, beyond a shadow of a doubt, past tense, Christ has been raised from the dead, and that does change everything. Amen and praise God. Now listen, we can give indisputable proofs that Christ has been raised from the dead, and we should do that. But even those indisputable proofs doesn't make it so. And let me tell you why. It doesn't make it so because even if there wasn't one proof at all that Jesus Christ was raised from the dead, even if we couldn't find one proof that he was raised from the dead, it is still true because God said it. It's based on his word, his promises, his character, and his nature. And yet he's been pleased to give us more than ample proof for the resurrection of Jesus Christ. People just don't want to believe it, so they're going to suppress it in unrighteousness. They're going to come up with other false ways, other excuses like they always do because we want to live in our sins. We've all been there. We've all done that. Some of you are still there, still doing that, right? Please come to Christ if you are. But there's plenty of proof. And we do need to show that. Even though we know that people may not believe, God still may be pleased to use that in their lives to bring him bring them to himself. So what do we have? We talked about it already, the prophecy. I read it from Psalm 16. It's put together in Acts 13, 34, and 35. Psalm 16, 9, and 10. Therefore, my heart is glad. My whole being rejoices. My flesh also dwells secure. For you will not abandon my soul to the grave or Sheol. You will not let your Holy One see corruption. Then go to Acts chapter 13, where we see the fulfillment of this as they're preaching Christ. Paul's preaching Christ. He says, as for the fact that he raised him from the dead, no more to return to corruption. And then he quotes directly from Psalm 16, you will not let your Holy One see corruption. So we have prophecy. Long ago, a thousand years before the event, we have the predictive prophecy that Christ would be raised from the dead. We have Jesus' own prediction. So we do have ample proof. Again, in the heart of the unbeliever, 
The facts don't speak for themselves. Just look at today. Look at the world we're living in today. The facts do not speak for themselves. Doesn't mean we don't bring the facts. Doesn't mean we don't pray the Lord uses them, but we don't count on them. The truth is the truth, whether people want to deny that truth, suppress that truth and unrighteousness or not. But we're living in a day very much, very much, where the facts do not speak for themselves. We still need to bring the truth. We can think of many, many examples, but we won't even go there this morning. Jesus' own predictions, we have the empty tomb, of course. We have the initial reaction of the disciples. What was the initial reaction of the disciples when they heard about the resurrection? Were they like, oh, yeah, that's it, we knew it. No, 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 no. They were chickens. They were still afraid. When the women came back from the tomb, what did Peter say? He said, you're telling a tale. You're making this up. What's wrong with you, woman? You know, like, you... They didn't believe in that way that it was true, even though they knew, even though he told them. On the road to Emmaus, what did the two guys say? Yes, we knew he was going to be raised. Well, it's already the third day, and he hasn't raised. So that, right? That, that was their attitude. That was their spirit. They weren't going to go and take Jesus out of the grave and overcome the, the, the guards. No way. But... Notice what happens after Pentecost when the power of the resurrection, when the risen Lord, the Spirit poured out upon them. They go from being those little chickens in that room to doing what? To boldly proclaiming what? The resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. They were preaching that. They were getting in trouble for that. We read about that. That's throughout the book of Acts. They were boldly preaching Christ crucified and raised from the dead at their own peril. And they didn't care about their life. They knew that he had been raised from the dead. Bold preaching. The Apostle Paul's testimony throughout the book of Acts, his life, he's seen the risen Christ. We're talking about 1 Corinthians 15 in the beginning of it. The lies of the leaders. Again, they didn't say how stupid, how dumb, how foolish you are for believing such a silly thing that somebody could be raised from the dead. They said, no, 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 no. Tell them that the body was stolen instead. Right? Tell them that, that that's what happened, actually. History, archaeology, we can go on and on. There's more than ample proof of that resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. But even if there wasn't, he still has been raised by the power of God. Amen. Now, to our lives, living our lives, what explains our lives as Christ, as Christians living in Christ. Yes, we've been regenerated by the Holy Spirit. He's given us a heart of flesh, taken the heart of stone, given us life in the Spirit, empowers us through the Spirit, but it's the power of the resurrection that we know that Christ has been raised from the dead, that we live for him. Paul says in Philippians 3, 8 through 10, after he talked about how wonderful he was before he was a Christian, everything that he did, how great, blah, 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 he says this, Indeed, I count everything as lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. That's it. If you're a Christian, nothing else matters. Not your past success, not how wonderful you were, not how many people loved you, how many people liked you. Nothing matters but pleasing Jesus Christ. Knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for I have suffered the loss of all things and I count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. To know him is more important than anything else. You could take everything that I have, but you can't take Christ. If I have Christ, then I have everything that I need. Amen and praise God. I love this passage, but um, he goes on. For I've suffered the loss of all things, count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own, that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ Jesus, the righteousness from God that depends on faith that I may know him and the power of his resurrection 
and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death. The power of his resurrection to know, it's not just knowing intellectually, it's knowing experientially as well. We know the power, even if we can't explain it completely, we know that change that takes place that power of the resurrection and in some ways depends on the resurrection of Christ because if there's no resurrection of Christ, then none of this is true at all, is it? Listen, our changed lives doesn't make the resurrection true. You understand that? Our change, because we're changed, people change in all different ways. Our changed lives doesn't make the resurrection true. But because the resurrection is true, our living for Christ is not in vain. Do you, does that make sense to you? Please try to understand that. It's not the fact, oh, I just believe in the resurrection, so I'm different. No, because the resurrection is true, I am different. I'm not the person that I used to be because he is alive. We have a living Savior. Because it's true, our lives are changed. There is a difference because we serve a living Savior. Amen? Not a dead false prophet. We have a living faith that is alive. And so there is power in the preaching. Our preaching's not in vain, at least hopefully not. Sometimes it seems that way, but you know, you don't, it's not up to us. It's up to the Spirit. It's up to the Lord. It is not in vain. When the Word is preached, the Lord uses that to change lives, and you're a testimony of that. You know that. When that Word takes hold in your heart, you are changed. As a matter of fact, our conversion is likened to a spiritual resurrection. Do you know that? You were dead in your trespasses and sins. You know that. You, we were all dead in our trespasses and sins, just living our lives merrily along the way, the way we saw fit, the way we wanted to, the way we thought we are, <sighs> until Christ. We were dead. He made you alive together in Christ Jesus. He makes us alive. Colossians 3.1 tells us this. If you have been raised with Christ... Seek the things that are above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. We have been raised with him. We will be raised bodily, but this is spiritually. We're already, that power of the resurrection is living, active, effective, like the word is living, active, word, and effective in our lives. So we have that power in preaching. It's not in vain. It's not. It changes. It changes people. He works through his spirit. By his word, and lives are changed. The power of the living God and the resurrection of Christ. And we see the power in the changed lives. Your life isn't futile. It's not in vain if you're trusting in Jesus Christ. It's transformational, man. Listen, in those, that transformation, that power of the resurrection comes to those who aren't looking for Christ. I know sometimes people say they're searching, but man, most people are not looking for Jesus Christ. Were you looking for Jesus Christ? I'm looking for Christ. I'm searching for Christ in my life. You weren't doing that. You were going along your merry way, doing what you wanted to do, living the way that you wanted to live, and he came, and he saw you, and he grabbed you, and he brought you to himself. If you really think about your salvation, that's the way that it happened. It's not like, hey, Jesus, I'm looking for you. Where are you? No, no. You, you were probably one of those people saying, yeah, resurrection, I don't know, maybe, maybe not. I was raised Catholic, so I guess I believe it, but I'm not really sure. It doesn't really jive with science. So, you know, we were probably denying the resurrection. If that wouldn't make you happy, if that's what you need, okay, it's kind of a fairy tale, wishful thinking. You know, you might have been the one teasing other people who believed, taunting, ridiculing others, but now you know. Now you know because he saved you.
because he, he found you. So now you believe and you trust in the power of God to change, and the resurrection bears witness to that. Because he lives, this is true of you. You understand? Everything's based on the, based on the resurrection. It is why our worldview is in collision with all other worldviews. That's why Christians don't get along with people very much. Because our worldview is different. We're bringing forth what the Bible actually says in a world that hates the Bible, that hates God, that says, no, 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 no. He tells me I need to be this. I don't want that. Just like last week we talked about, I'm going to be the one that makes decisions for my life, not God. <laughs> i got to follow him. It doesn't work for me. It's why our worldview collides with all others. It's why our faith is so costly to us. It really is, if you think about it. Even if we're not facing outright persecution, which may come in the very near future, but even in our lives and our relationship with our family and friends and people that aren't in the Lord, it's, it's tough, isn't it? We, face, we do face some ridicule. We face kind of rejection. and you know, We're not like everybody else is. And we're the strange ones. We're the weird ones in, the, in that way. But, but you know what? It's costly, but we're willing to pay the price. Like I said earlier, we're willing to risk relationship, right? I'm willing to risk my relationship for the cause of truth because that's how much I love you and how much you need Jesus Christ. So I'm not going to placate. I'm not going to affirm. I'm not going to just embrace and, and you know, just say, yeah, it's, it's okay because that's what love is. That's that, that, that kind of love loves you straight into hell, man. The love that truly loves says, man, I love you so much. Here's what the truth is. And you need to wrestle with that truth. That's love. We're willing to risk that. We're willing to risk our reputation. How many of us are, you know, just kind of, you guys aren't scientific. You guys aren't this. You guys aren't that. None of that's really true. We are in all those ways, but that's kind of the perception. You guys are just, oh, you just believe blind faith. That's not true. We're willing to risk our resources. If it comes down to it, and they say, look, you're going to have to say this or do this, or you're going to lose your job and lose your source of income, what are you going to do, Christian? For real, what are you going to do in the end? You're going to have to say, no, I can't, I can't deny my Savior, like Paul said. I know some of you don't think you would do that, but if you're a real Christian, you will when the time comes. It makes us willing to endure slander. It makes us willing to endure hate and mistreatment. And not just endure that, but to answer. See, this is the power of the resurrection in us. Because we can't do this on our own. Because he lives and he's alive. We answer that hate and ridicule with truth and with love and with care, even for our enemies. Even though our intentions are misunderstood, you know our intentions are misunderstood. You know how much you love the person in your life who doesn't know Christ, who's rebelling against Christ, but your intention as you speak, to it's going to be misunderstood. You don't really love me because you don't accept me. You don't let me do what I want. You don't have a... It's misunderstood. We love you so much. Our actions are going to be mischaracterized. So if we're standing outside in front of an abortion clinic because we know that there's a baby inside that womb, it's, it's going to be murdered, then, then it's mischaracterized. Oh, you, you people are so mean and unloving and hurtful, and you're, you, know, you don't care about the woman, and you don't care about this. That's mischaracterized. You know that. Our words are misconstrued, right? twisted and turned all the way around, all the time. We don't do these things because we know that the resurrection is true. We don't sit to say, well, we know the resurrection is true, so we're going to do this. But we do them 
because it is true, and we're compelled to do these things. We can't do anything else. Do you understand? I, I don't know if I'm explaining that right, and if you see that the nuance there, but it, we don't do them because we know the resurrection true, but because it is true, we're compelled to do these things as Christians for the sake of Jesus Christ. And I think that's an amazing proof of the resurrection, but that's, unbelievers aren't going to believe that necessarily. But it is true because we are serving. And if it wasn't, why would we do this? Why would we put ourselves through this? We're, we're compelled to live this way. You know, we, we fight against our sin because of Christ in us, because of, because of his life. If it were up to us, we'd be gone in a minute, right? He keeps us because he's alive. We're serving a living Savior, the one who has defeated sin, Satan, the grave, and hell. He rules and he reigns. He will return. He will judge the earth in righteousness. And all those who are living just for themselves right now and opposed to God will have to give an answer to him. It's not a question of, you know, am I, am I going to have to? It's just a question of when. So today is the day of salvation. Please turn from your sin and know that there's a living Savior. Only Christianity can fill that which is missing in your life and your heart. I don't care what you do. I don't care how much money you make. I don't care how successful you are. I don't care how beautiful you are. I don't care, you know, the, the life you want to live that you're trying to live that makes you happy, just so you say in that way. It will not in the end. You could change yourself or try to change yourself. It will not bring that joy, that hope, the true happiness that only Christ could give because he is alive, because he is the living Savior, because he is our God.